0: Alright, turn to 1 Kings chapter 2, 1 Kings chapter 2, Um, the theme of this chapter, 1 Kings 2 is repeated four times, it's in the beginning of the beginning section, there's 46 verses I think in this chapter, we're not going to get through them all tonight, we're going to do this in two parts, Um, it's in the first, the theme is in the first section, uh, and then it's in the middle, and then it's in the, at the end twice. Uh, look at verse 12. It's the first time we see it. It says here, Solomon sat on the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was what? It was firmly established. That's what this chapter is all about. Look at verse 24. Solomon says, Now therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me and set me on the throne of David my father, who has made me a house as he promised, he says. Look at verse 45. But King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established forever, or before the Lord forever. <clears throat> Look at the last sentence of verse 46. Thus the kingdom was established in the hands of Solomon. The kingdom was established, meaning it was made firm, it was stable. It became a stable kingdom, it became a secure kingdom. The theme of this chapter is security of Solomon's kingdom. So the question we're going to ask tonight is how did this throne become secure? What elements went into that? And there are mainly two reasons as to why this happened. The first is primary, the primary reason. The second reason is important also for the maintenance of the kingdom. The first reason that Solomon's kingdom was made secure is because of a divine promise, a divine promise. And the second reason is because of human commitment. First of all, let's look at the divine promise. And this promise was made prior to this chapter. It's important to understand that going into this chapter. But look at verse 24. Or rather, let me say this, when all is said and done, what, is, what do you think the foundational reason is for the kingdom being established in the hands of Solomon? Who is it that makes the kingdom secure in the hands of Solomon? Again, verse 24, let's let Solomon answer that question. It says there, Solomon says, Now therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me and set me on the throne of David my father, and who has made me a house as he promised, He says it there. It's the Lord that did this. Very obvious. The fundamental reason that Solomon is established on his throne is because the Lord put him there. It's very plain, very obvious. It's not by accident. It's not by the luck of the draw. We see guys trying to come in and usurp the kingdom. None of those guys make it. It's because the divine initiative, the Lord wants this to happen. And because the promise came from God, it's guaranteed. Now turn with me, if you will, to 1 Chronicles 28. I said that Periodically, as we go through Kings, we're going to see some references we need to check out in 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles 28, verse 5. This is David speaking. 1 Chronicles 28, five. He, David says, "...of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons." Interesting statement. "...he has chosen my son Solomon." to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. Notice it's the kingdom of the Lord, he calls it. He said to me, Your son Solomon is the one who shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be a son to me. I will be a father to him. I will establish his kingdom forever, if he resolutely performs my commandments and my ordinances as is done now. And so you can see that Solomon is definitely the choice of God to be the next king after David, without a doubt. Now, if you really want to understand this, let's go back again to the Davidic covenant, turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. As we when we went through 2 Samuel, we talked about this, but go back there again to see something here. It pertains to this chapter. That is the Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 16. The word established is used four times in uh, 1 Kings 2. That same word is used three times in 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. The promise is made to David when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will what? Establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There it is again. Verse 14, I'll be a father to him. He'll be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul. Whom I remove from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, what's the takeaway from all this? Well, simply this the Lord made a promise to Solomon, to David, and he kept that promise. He promised that Solomon would be the one on the throne, and he brought stability to that particular throne, that, that kingdom. So the Lord took the initiative, as the Lord always takes the initiative in all things, took it as he took it in our salvation, and all things that are done on this planet. He takes initiative. He follows through on it. He promises. He initiates. He brings it to pass. Now, that's what God did. Now, when I make promises, I can't guarantee the same results. I'm going to do my best to keep a promise. If I make it to someone, I'm going to do my best to keep it. However, there may be unforeseen circumstances that come up. I didn't realize in advance that make that promise difficult to keep. Maybe I promised some, somebody I'd do something on a certain day and I didn't realize I had a conflict in my schedule and I don't keep the promises I should. Maybe I forget the promise and it's too late to recoup on that, and so I don't keep it as I should. I'm going to do my best to do that, keep my promises. But When the Lord makes a promise, you can rest assured he's going to keep his promise, unlike we do. Circumstances will not prevent him from carrying out his promises, such as rebellions as were staged in chapter 1 of 1 Kings i not going to keep him from keeping, down his, his, keeping his promises. There are no conflicts in the schedule of God. He doesn't forget to keep his promise. Uh, he doesn't go back on his word. It's like it says in Romans 3, verse 4, Let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. God's always true to his word. Uh, you can always count on his word. Uh, we can't count on our word always, but thank God we can count on his word. And that should encourage you tonight. You should learn to trust in his word. He'll, he'll take care of you. And when the Lord says, Cast your cares upon me, and he'll sustain you, he means that. You can cast your cares upon him. That's his promise from his word. When he says, I'll be with you until the end of this age, you can count on that promise. When he says, There's an inheritance reserved for you in heaven, undefiled, and it's kept for you forever, he, 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 he means that. We can trust our, on his word. We can put our faith in his word. This is a God who makes promises, and this is a God who keeps promises. So foundational to the establishment of Solomon's kingdom is the promise of God. The divine promise is fulfilled. He said, I'm going to set Solomon on the throne, and I'm going to establish his kingdom, and he does that. There's also human commitment, and that is chapter 2. That's the entirety of chapter 2 uh, of 1 Kings. And As I say, it will take a couple of weeks to get through that. Now, we've already seen that the Lord established Solomon's kingdom, but 2 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 1 says something very interesting. It adds another element, as does 1 Kings chapter 2, 2 Chronicles 1.1 1, 1 says this, Now Solomon, the son of David, established himself, it says. He established himself securely over his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him, and he exalted him greatly. So the Lord established Solomon, and it says Solomon established himself. You have a divine promise, you have divine working, and yet you have human commitment also. We'll see that tonight. Now, how, now, what do I mean when I say human commitment? Well, chapter 2 shows us basically two ways in which Solomon, on his part, was to go about maintaining a stable kingdom, a secure kingdom. And that was very important to have a stable kingdom with all the things that could come against it. And that, that would be done by following the advice David gives in chapter 2. Beginning of the chapter, David gives his final words of advice. He gives spiritual instructions, political instructions. And if, if Solomon followed those, his kingdom would be secure. Before we get into that, though, let me say a word about David's condition at this time. You remember chapter 1 of 1 Kings, last time we were in this book? Last I think it was last week. David is described as an old man. We'll go back to 1 Kings 1.1. <clears throat> David was old, advanced in, in age, it says, and we talked about that. Verse 15, same chapter. The king was very old. In verse 1, his age is evidenced by the fact that he can't keep warm. He's got a problem with that. And uh, verse 21 Bathsheba says, look, you need to appoint Solomon to be the king. This other guy, Adonijah, the half-brother of, of Solomon, was trying to stage a rebellion and take over the kingdom. And Bathsheba says, David, please, go ahead and make the call and put Solomon as the king because we're afraid you're going to die. You're an old man. And we're afraid you're going to die first before you make him the king. There's this constant emphasis on the fact that David's going to die. And then you go to chapter 2, verse 1, and what does it say? It says, as David's time to die drew near. Again, it's emphasized. And David knows it. He recognizes it. And so he says in verse 2, I am going the way of all the earth. Going the way of all the earth. That's a phrase in the Bible that means simply I'm going to die. Death is the way of all the earth. It's the way everyone eventually goes. Everybody eventually dies. Only Enoch and and, uh, Elijah remained alive without going through death. And maybe those who or here when the Lord comes, will not have to go through the pain of death. But the universal truth is this, the wages of sin is death, right? Everyone dies. The Lord told Adam in Genesis 3.19, after, after he deliberately sinned, he says, for you are dust, and then, the dust you shall return. It's the promise of God again, another promise, that we all die. Now we're here for a little while on this planet. We think we're here, we have forever. We don't have forever, we don't know how long we have. None of us know this. Here for a while, then we die. No one knows the day of death. Only God knows. If we're fortunate and live a normal life, that could be around the age of 70 or so. And uh, you know that David lived to be about 70, as a matter of fact, and died, which Psalms 90 verse 10 says this, interestingly enough. Uh, Psalm 90 verse 10 says, As for the days of our years, they contain 70 years. Or, if due to strength, they uh, 80 years... Maybe we'll live to be 80, even. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. I mean, we're not here all that long in this grand scheme of eternity as God looks down on the history of the world. One life is not here for very long. It's very brief. Job said in Job chapter 14, verse 1, Man who is born of woman is short of days. Like a flower, he comes forth and withers. He didn't even hang around all that long. He withers He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. These comparisons to the brevity of life, like a shadow, like a a withering flower. There's not much to it, really. And then it says over in James 4.14, You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Life is short. Life is uncertain. Not even the greatest king of Israel can avoid it. He can't escape it. He, He meets it as well. But for the believer, the believer, it's not the end. We have great hope in Christ. Paul said to die is gain. So we do have the hope of, of being in Christ and of eternal life. But aware of all this, aware of his coming death, David, David decides, I've got to give final words of counsel to Solomon before he gets to, on the throne. I want to tell him some things. And so that's what he does in chapter 2 at the beginning of the chapter. He is, in, in fact, really, it says in Verse 1, David's time to to die drew near, and he charged Solomon, his son. It wasn't simply advice that he could take or leave. Here, let me give you a few pointers about how to be a king, Solomon. If you want to take these, that's fine. If not, from the side. No, he charged him. In other words, he commanded him. He said, here's what I want you to do. This is basically telling something he's telling him to do, not asking him to do. He's obligating Solomon to certain things. In the first nine verses, David lays down spiritual instructions for Solomon, for the kingdom, for the establishment and security of the kingdom, stability of the kingdom, and also political instructions. We're only going to get through the spiritual instructions tonight. The spiritual instructions are found in verses 2 to 4. The first bit of instructions he gives is this. He tells, David tells Solomon, accept responsibility, Solomon. Accept responsibility. Verse 2, he says, I'm going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. Now, if you would turn to chapter 3, verse 7, another page or two over. Solomon is talking to the Lord in chapter 3, verse 7. He says, Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or to come in. Now, we've talked about this word child before. We've said several times recently, and this is the same word, by the way, used in Psalm 119, where it says, How shall a young man cleanse his way? Same word there. could mean it can be, it range anywhere from a, a small child all the way to a young man of marriageable age, and it's thought maybe Solomon was around 20 years of age at this time or so. And so he's, he's a young man, and the one thing he doesn't have on his side is experience. He really doesn't. He says, I don't know how to come in or go out or come in. I really don't have experience in life. I'm only a young man. And so he admits it. He's naive. And yet he's about to take over the leadership of a nation. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine at the age of 20 taking over the leadership of a nation? I mean, you can't even imagine that at your age right now, probably. I couldn't imagine it. But David knows this and he gives him some very sound practical advice. He says this first of all, Be strong, therefore, Solomon, and show yourself a man. Literally, that is, become a man. It's time to grow up. It's time to leave childhood behind. We we would say in our day and age now, we would say, man up, Solomon. Step up. You have heavy responsibilities ahead of you. It's a huge responsibility to become the king of Israel. And and so David says to him basically in so many words... you must accept this responsibility understand this is a heavy responsibility being laid upon you and now it's time for you to step up and accept this responsibility remind me of Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 Paul's illustrating the truth about knowing in part and and knowing in uh, fully and he says when I that phrase when I became a man I put away childish things it's time for Solomon to put away any remnants of childhood now he's entered the the he's entered the big time now and he's got, to put, he's, got to put, he's got to take on the responsibility. And that's what men do. That's what adults do. That's what mature people do. They do what? They accept responsibility. Now, the best definition, you're going to love this one. I've ever heard of what a man is came from Sandy. She always told our children this. She said, a man is one who accepts his responsibility and does it. That may have to go down in the Hall of Fame somewhere. A man, I've always thought this is true. This summarizes it perfectly. A man is one who accepts his responsibility and does it. Perfect. And then she'd say this, she'd add to the boy, she'd say, so you can be a man when you're 10 or a boy when you're 40. Well, that cut pretty deep. <laughs> but that's true. And so taking on responsibility is, is manhood, is maturity. It's womanhood, it's being mature, especially in this society where men are being feminized. I don't even go off on that subject. It's good common sense though. But there are many today who will not accept responsibility as we all know. I see it all the time. People who will not accept their responsibilities and it really is troubling to me, but of all people, believers must accept their responsibility. It should go without saying that, that, that all believers in the Lord, men and women, accept their responsibilities as husbands and wives, In the area of being fathers and mothers, you accept your responsibilities. Uh, In the church, believers should accept their responsibilities. On the job, believers should gladly accept their responsibilities. Whatever it might be, all true followers of Christ are to accept and execute their responsibilities unto the Lord. We should do this. Whatever the Lord has placed in your hand, we should do it. Not to shirk our responsibilities, not to be lazy. Not to, take, not to let somebody else take up the slack. That happens so often, doesn't it? Someone doesn't take care of the responsibility. Somebody else has to step in and do your job for you. And we've got to take our responsibilities seriously. A minute ago, I quoted Paul on the subject of maturity. <clears throat> Boy, he says a lot in 1 Corinthians about maturity, by the way, if you think about it. It's not all he says there, by the way. He says in, in 1 Corinthians 14, in a discussion about tongues, all of a sudden he brings this verse in. First Corinthians fourteen twenty, they're talking about tongues. He says, "Wait a minute, guys. Let's get let's let's get not get carried away with this thing." And then he says, "This, brethren, do not be children in your thinking. You guys are like babies. The way you think about everything is what he said basically. Don't be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be infants. Yes, but in your thinking be what? Be mature. He says, be mature." And then I love 1 Corinthians sixteen thirteen, which is exactly what I thought of when I read. Uh, 1 Kings uh, 2, uh, 2 uh, he says in uh, 1 Corinthians sixteen thirteen to the Corinthian church, Paul says, Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Or if you're reading the King James, it'd say, Quit ye like men, right? Act like men, be strong. Now probably if any church needed to hear that, it was the Corinthian church who was, who was full of spiritually immature people, not accepting their responsibilities. Why, which was why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.1, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of the flesh. He says, as to infants in Christ, you're like babies. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. You're not even able to receive it. Even now you're not yet able, for you're still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? Does that sound like believers who are mature, <clears throat> ready to accept and execute their responsibilities. And so Paul has to get on them. They're busy fighting with each other like little children. They're immature spiritually. That was a church that needed to act like men. Now we know someone's going to bring up, oh, well, you know, we can get our strength in the Lord, right? Yeah, I know. I know. We get our strength from the Lord. I know that we're to be strong in the Lord and the power of might understand that. We all understand that. Sometimes I think we just need to be called out because we're irresponsible, and we're lazy. And, we're act, and we need to hear the words like, act like adults. Be mature. Take your responsibilities seriously. Don't, you know, quit being lazy. Do your job. Don't shirk your responsibilities. In this day and age, I think we need to hear it more than ever. Now, Solomon's on the throne now. It's time for him to take on the serious responsibilities of the kingdom. He's going to rule as a king. And so David says, Solomon, well, you know, first of all, be strong and show yourself a man. Become a man. It's time for you to become a man. Take on responsibility. Big responsibility. Big time. And then he says, secondly, obey the word. Obey the words. First 3 and 4. Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, his testimonies according to what is written in the law of Moses that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn. So that the Lord may carry out his promise which he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons are careful of their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Now, what would you tell of someone if they're if you're dying, what would your final words be to them? What would your final words be to your own children? If you're on your deathbed and then you're in your hospital and they came to visit you, what would you tell them? David says, Solomon, here's some final words of advice obey the word of God if anybody knew about that it was him through the experiences he'd been through in life the first and most important responsibility solomon will have as the king of israel is to obey the word of god it's foundational if if he fails here if his life crumbles spiritually the kingdom is not far behind the nation has to have strong spiritual leadership do you know that the king of israel was a spiritual leader first and foremost he was to lead the nation spiritually now, how often have we read through the Kings and, and Chronicles and we've seen total disasters, spiritual disasters on our hand? but the, 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 he was supposed to be the spiritual leader. Now, go back with me, if you will, to Deuteronomy 17. We've talked about this before. We're going to talk about it again. And, and, and Deuteronomy 17, long before, we're not going to read all of it, this section, but just some, long before there was a king in Israel, There's a passage here that says, hey, when you guys get a king one day, here's what you need to do. You need to follow these instructions. Look at chapter 17, Deuteronomy 17, verse 18. He says, now it shall come about when the king sits on the throne of his kingdom. He shall write for himself a copy of this law and a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. It shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life that he may learn to fear The Lord is God, by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom and in the midst of Israel. Some very clear instructions for the king laid down here as to how he's to guide his life spiritually. First of all, he's supposed to write his own copy of the law. And uh, under the supervision of Levitical priest, make sure that he does it right. You know, doing that will know he's, he's got to write it out himself, it says. They don't do it for him. Doing that will help, no doubt, imprint it upon his mind as he writes it out. You know, you can, if, when you write things out, you're more apt to remember things. And it would probably be a good practice, by the way, if you're memorizing Scripture, to write out the passage several times with your own hand. And so he, he does it. You remember more when you write it out. The king is to write the the copy of the law out for himself. Now, think about this for a minute. How many of you would like to write out Genesis with your own handwriting? The book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You'd like to write it all out, word for word. And that's what he had to do. And then he's got got to keep this copy of the law with him. It says in verse 19, it shall be with him. He's got to keep it with him so so he can have it at all times, have access to it, have it in his presence. Let me ask you a question: Do you always have access to the Scripture at all times? Do you have it with you, like a New Testament, maybe in your pocket, maybe on your cell phone, or some verse of, uh, you've scratched out on a sheet of paper, you stuffed in your pocket, you can look at it later? Do you do that? You know, D.L. Moody said that he always—it was said of him—he always had at least a New Testament on him wherever he went. He challenged people, as a matter of fact, to try to catch him without a Bible on him, on his person, and people tried, and they never—they never caught him without a Scripture. New Testament in his coat pocket something, they always, he always had it with him all the time. That was before the days of cell phones, okay? People now can have a cell phone. Oh, I got my Bible here. Yeah, you got your cell phone here, but it's fine if you use it as a Bible as well. I, I consider phones a books anyway. I think it's just a book to me. Not a phone, it's a book. But the king was to have it in his presence always, to be his constant companion wherever he went. And then the king was to read it. Look at the instructions there. He's to read it in all the days of his life. Think about that. This is just laid out word for word, very simply. Here, write a copy of the law, keep it with you, read it every day. All the days of your life, it says. Read his Bible daily, and it's supposed to be an everyday occurrence. It doesn't matter, not an occasional thing. It doesn't matter if he felt like it or not. How many of you ever feel like reading your Bible every single day? And nevertheless, the instructions that apply to the king of Israel apply to us in this manner. We should all read our Bibles every day. And he's never going to outgrow his need for the Bible since he is to read it in all the days of his life, it says. All the days of his life. And I'll tell you something. It doesn't matter whether you're a king or a pauper. Don't we all need the Word of God all the days of our life? When do we ever outgrow the need for the Scripture? It's to be our daily food and drink. It's like water to our physical bodies. We can't exist without it. We've got to have it. We're in desperate need of it. But we don't even know how desperate. We're... You know, you talk about uh, being uh, people need hydration from lack of water. We need the scripture like that. We never know. People say, we never really know you're, you're totally dehydrated. You don't even realize it. We're, we're like that with the scripture. We're spiritually dehydrated. It's like water to us. We need it. You can't take a vacation from the Bible periodically. It's something that's a daily pursuit. It's like a daily vitamin against the spiritual ills of your soul, the scripture is. I need it desperately. There's no retirement from the Bible. It's our lifelong guide. It should be with us all the days of our life so we can feed upon it. Now, why is the this, this Scripture so important to the king? Why does he need to do this? Look at the reasons that are given. Uh, number one, there's three reasons. First of all, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. Stephen talked about teaching his kids the fear of the Lord. How do we learn the fear of the Lord? We learn it by carefully observing all the Lord's words and including into that is obedience to it with his words. The more we do that, the greater fear of God we develop in our lives. The king is the fear of the Lord because the king has to rule in the fear of the Lord, right? So he's got to fear the Lord and know the Lord. The fear of the Lord is tied up, it's tied in directly with the word of the Lord. It all goes together. And by the way, if you don't fear the Lord like you should, maybe it's because you're not into the word of the Lord like you should be. Secondly, he says here, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen. You know, when you adhere to the word of God and you do what it says, it keeps pride away. Makes you a humble person. You want to keep pride away? Then become a reader and a doer of the word. It'll keep you a humble person. You'll be constantly reminded as you read the word, hey, the Lord's in charge, not me. He's the one running this show here. I'm his servant. I'm supposed to be loving other people and helping them and serving them, not being you know, proud and arrogant. We learn, we'll learn not to think more highly of ourselves if we, if we are walking in submission to the Word. We won't be lifted up above others, it says. Third reason that he had to read the Word, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or the left. You know that daily reading of the Bible that we put behind us and don't put, make it a priority in our lives because we don't have time for it? That very word that we neglect is what keeps us on track of obeying the word of God. As we're reminded every day as we look into what it says, that God wants us to stay on track with him. You know, Reading the word is not an end in itself. We, read, we sang that old hymn, Break out the Bread of Life, which I'm sure everybody was pretty thrilled about singing. But there are some words in there that were interesting in that song. She says in that song, Beyond the sacred page, I seek the Lord. Beyond the sacred page, I see. Now, she's not talking about <clears throat> neglect the sacred page, neglect the scripture, and then just seek the Lord. They're separated. Now, now, she's saying, in effect, it leads us to the Lord. The scripture leads us to the Lord. And that's what she's saying. And she says in the song also, Show me the truth concealed within thy word, and in thy book revealed I see the Lord. See? Sacred pages of scripture reveal to us the Lord. How many people are looking for a vision of God, but he's, in, he's to be found in the scriptures. You want to know about the character of God, and you want to know about who God is, and you want to know about what, what God is like, and you want to know about what his, his sovereign purposes are, and all these things and many more, then you go to the word of God, and you see him there. That's where we come in contact with the Lord in the sacred pages of scripture. Deuteronomy 17 really is the background to 1 Kings chapter 2. Now go back to 1 Kings chapter 2 again. Chapter 2, verse 3. And we find Solomon, David here saying basically the same thing as was already said in Deuteronomy 17. He says in verse 3, keep the charge of the Lord your God, walk in his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, his testimonies, according to all is written in the law of Moses. Now, his first what he's saying here is to obey the word in its totality. He uses all these terms. His ways, his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, his testimonies. Reminds us of Psalm 19, using the same terms. Reminds us of Psalm 119, which uses the same type terms. He's saying, in effect, obey all that Moses has written in its totality. Don't leave any stone unturned when it comes to the scriptures and when it comes to obeying them. Obey it in its totality. Don't neglect any of it. Now, why does he say the law of Moses here? He says, obey the law of Moses. Now, he says that because, simply because that was the Bible of Solomon's day. They had the law of Moses. They didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have the completed Old Testament at the time, not even a completed Old Testament. They had the law of Moses, and that's what the Lord intended for them to have at the time, and that's what Solomon was to concentrate on. That's the Bible he had in, at that time in history. You know, Here's a subject that we refer to as progressive revelation, meaning that the Scripture was not given all at one shot in history, all in time, it was given through the ages, through the different stages of time, different centuries it was given. It's an amazing fact of, of, amazing fact that God used some 40 men to write the Scriptures over a period of about 1,500 years on three different continents, and it all comes together as a unified whole. That's amazing. Scriptures do that. But it was over the years, and Moses, Solomon rather had only the first five books of Moses, and that's what the Lord wants him to concentrate on. And the further revelation given does not contradict the previous revelation given. There may be some changes made, but they're specified. For example, Christ came as the final sacrifice. There's no more animal sacrifices to be offered up. It makes that clear through the Scripture. But as Solomon focused on the law of Moses, so we should focus on the entire completed revelation of God. All of us should go to the Word of God. Now what happens as a result of Solomon's obedience to the Word what happens as a result? Look at, look at verse 3 at the end of it. That you may succeed. I want you to get in the word and the scripture and obey it. That you may succeed in all that you do wherever you turn. Now, a lot of, you know, the prosperity gospel preachers see that verse. You may succeed in all that you do. And they like to think in their minds, success is equated with uh, accumulation of wealth and material goods and things like that. Uh, but that's never the message the Bible is giving. It's never saying that. The non-prosperity gospel preachers say, they come across this verse, they all get nervous. There's no reason to get nervous about this. Uh, The word success here does have to do with prosperity. We don't have to run away from the word. We don't have to run from the idea. If Solomon obeyed the scriptures, simply put, he would prosper. That's what it says there. Now, prosperity comes in many different ways, as the scripture makes very clear. Solomon did become very rich, wealthy beyond imagination, but he also became very wise. The Lord can prosper people by giving them wealth. He can prosper them by giving them wisdom or discernment or guidance or many different things. Really, prosperity has to do with the blessing of God upon an individual and however that comes, comes out, however God wants it to come out. Turn with me to Genesis 39. I want to show you this just to show you a point here. Um, <clears throat> Genesis 39 Joseph was a successful man, and Genesis 39 tells us why. Joseph 30, uh, Genesis 39.1, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer, of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, brought him from the Ishmaelites, bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had taken him down before the Lord was with Joseph. You see that? He was with Joseph, so he became a what? A successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with them and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant and he made him overseer over his house. And all that he owned he put in his charge. It came about that from that time he made him overseer in the house and over all that he owned that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. Look at verse 20. He's put in jail later on. Joseph's master took him and put him in jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was put there in jail. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it to prosper. Joseph is a prosperous, successful man. And so, if you're a prosperity gospel preacher, you should jump on this chapter and say, man, look at this. But do you see his circumstances and this prosperity he's in? He gets sold as a slave by his brother. He, he gets thrown into prison. But in spite of all that, the Lord is prospering him. Uh, how, even under adverse circumstances. Now, how does he do that? Joseph, Joseph is not wealthy at this time. He's not the leader of Egypt at this time. He's not rich at this time. He's in jail at this time. And yet the Lord is prospering him. And others, how how did he do it? Others see that the Lord is with them. God has given him favor in the sight of his bosses. That's how he's prospering him. He's made overseer of the house. He's given favor in the sight of the chief jailer. He's given supervisory responsibilities in the jail. The house of the Egyptian is blessed because of his presence. I'm I'm just saying that prosperity can come in many ways. This guy's in jail. He's not rich or anything. And yet God's blessing him. Solomon is is promised prosperity. However, God brings that about because he's obedient to the word. Same concept is found in Joshua 1.8. When Joshua was to go to conquer the land of Canaan. Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night so you may be careful to do according to all that's written therein. Sound familiar? For then you will make your way prosperous. You'll have good success. How does success and prosperity work out for Joshua? Was it a life of ease for him, and he took it easy and became rich? No, he fought the Lord's battles. He was always in a military battle, and God gave him victory again and again. That's how he was prospered. He did exactly what God said, and God blessed him for it. You go to Psalm chapter 1, same thing there. Whoever delights in the law of the Lord is going to be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, right? His, his, His fruits, he's going to bear fruit. His leaf's not going to wither. All these things, whatever he does, he's going to prosper. There it is again. What kind of prosperity? Well, he's going to have a stable life, it says. He's going to bear fruit, it says. He's going to uh, not act like a leaf that's dying. He's going to be full of life, it says, because he's permeated with the Scripture. He's going to prosper in many ways. He's going to find his joy in God, and it goes on and on. Now, this is all throughout the Scriptures. It's in the New Testament as well. In James chapter one verses twenty-two to twenty-five, it says, "Be a doer of the word, not a hearer only." And it goes on to say, "If you do this, this man that looks intently into the law of the Lord, it says, or to the word of God, he's going to be blessed in what he does." It says, same same concept that's traced throughout the scripture. He's going to be blessed in what he does. Again, God prospers people in the way He sees fit. It can happen in many ways. We take these things for granted. God may give you favor at your company. He may give you a promotion. He may do many things for you. I don't know. He may open a door for you somehow to do his will. You know, we think that prosperity means a guy's going to back a dump truck, a truck up to your yard and dump out a bunch of money, and you're going to be wealthy. But we need to look at the little ways that God blesses us and prospers us. The Lord's going to prosper Solomon and his kingdom if he walks according to the truth of God's word. That's what it says there. And by the way, why should the Lord prosper him if he disregards the truth? Wouldn't make any sense at all. Notice the warning back in first Kings two, verse four, though. The warning that's given. So the Lord, so that the Lord may carry out his promise, which he spoke concerning to me, saying, If your sons are careful of their way, to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. That's a warning there. Is the Davidic covenant conditional or unconditional? According to 2nd Samuel 7 and we said this before it's unconditional. God's going to place the line, the kings of David, David's line on the throne of Israel forever it says. But here's what we need to understand. That doesn't mean the kings of Israel can live any way they please. And that's important for the rest of the 1st uh, and 2nd Kings. They can't live any way they want to. It says in Deuteronomy 17, don't turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left so that the king and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. Second Samuel 7.14 says when, when the king commits iniquity, the Lord will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. He's going to spank him if he commits iniquity. The Lord says, I'm going to discipline that guy. And so 2 second, second Samuel 15 goes on to say, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever. The Davidic covenant is unconditional, but it doesn't mean the kings of Israel can live any way they want to can't. God says obey the word. And by the way, neither can we. We can't live any way we want to either. Even the Lord has saved us and given us eternal life and, and promised us so many great things. So who established Solomon's throne? The Lord did. And does Solomon have any, any role in this at all? Yes. He is, his job is to read and study and have the copy of the scriptures in front of him and obey the word of God. The stability of his kingdom depends on it. If he obeys it, his kingdom is stable. If he doesn't, he moves, from, he moves away from, inst- from stability t- toward instability. And his kingdom could crumble as a result. And as he goes, by the way, so goes the nation. <clears throat> Let me ask you a question tonight as we close. Do you want a stable life, a secure life with the blessings of God, even if you're in the midst of adversity? I didn't say life was going to be a bed of roses. Even if you're in the midst of adversity, do you want a st- stability in the midst of all that? Well, first of all, you can thank God by establishing your life, by saving you in Christ, giving you salvation. Like As David said in Psalm 40, verse 2, he brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. So God establishes us in his salvation in Christ. And then you can thank him that he's going to preserve you all the way to the heavenly kingdom. But he will not tolerate continued disobedience from his children those who turn their back on His Word. He won't tolerate it. And you're asking, if you continue to disobey the Word of God, you're asking for an unstable life and an insecure life the further you plunge into darkness. Failure to obey the Word of God will lead to instability in your life. So what's the lesson to learn tonight? What can we take away tonight? Well, first of all, the Lord establishes His people. But don't forget, His people... Must always be committed to His Word. Let's pray tonight that we'll be committed to His Word. Lord, we pray we're thankful tonight that we have your word in front of us. We pray that we'll be always have it with us, and we pray that we'll have that we will take advantage of it every day by reading it, by taking it in, by obeying it, by pleasing you, Lord. We know that you said you would bless us in this, Lord, even though that difficulties may come in our life, trials will come in our life. You promise all these things, but also blessing. For those who obey your word, we just pray that we will be those who obey your word. tonight. I pray our church will be that as well. That we'll be people of your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.